0: Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil & Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil & Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energy Consulting, and joined the Oil & Gas Global Network as a podcast host. I invite you to go to the OGGN website and take a look at all of the other podcasts in the network and take a peek at the merchandise that's now available. Maybe even pick up the Oil & Gas Upstream t-shirt that reminds us that only the bit finds oil. And the link is in the show notes. And don't forget to sign up for OGGN's weekly newsletter. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Shauna Noonan, Oxy Fellow and Senior Director of Global Supply Chain Initiatives. Hi, Shauna. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. I'm honored to meet you too. Shauna has held the roles of Chief of Production Engineering and Director of Artificial Lift Technology. She holds a bachelor's in petroleum engineering from the University of Alberta and has 30 years of industry experience primarily in production operations and artificial lift systems globally at Oxy, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips. She has published over 25 technical papers on artificial lift and served as the SPE technical director for production and operations from 2012 to 2015. She wrote the JPT artificial lift technology focus from 2009 to 2014 and has chaired many SPE conferences and workshops on artificial lift systems. She is currently the vice chair of the SPE Gulf Coast Section Electric Submersible Pump Symposium, and will serve as the chair in 2025. And we're recording live here from the exhibit hall for the 2023 ESP uh, Symposium. Uh, Shauna was the 2020 SPE president, and that same year was named one of the 25 most influential women in industry by Heart Energy Magazine. Her proudest accomplishments, however, have been raising her two daughters. Oh, Sean, I'm so delighted to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us. So, so, Joanna, so, Shana, tell us how you got started in the oil and gas sector. I mean, you're obviously a subject matter expert of long standing and, and world, known worldwide, especially with your affiliation with uh, SPE as president. But tell us, how did all of that start? Obviously, I don't know that you would have uh, been a little girl and thought about becoming a petroleum engineer when you grow up. So how did you get started? Um, I actually started on
1: the medical track. So I grew up in a household where the expectation to have a doctor in the family was very high. So I grew up with anatomy, coloring books, and all sorts of novels based around the medical oh genre. Oh, my
0: gosh. Are there doctors in your family? Are your parents doctors? No. That, those hopes were, were pinned they on you. and died with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. What great parenting, though, to give you some thoughts about possibilities that were not traditionally uh, roles that women uh, would pursue, especially, you know, at that time. So. So I went to university in Edmonton,
1: Canada, University of Alberta, and I started in the pre-med track. Um, I did not necessarily enjoy my classes as much, but it was more the atmosphere and my classmates around me. It was a very competitive, kind of doggy dog uh, kind of atmosphere. Yeah. And I'm more of a collaborator, a team person, and I started to spend more time... in in the social space with those that were studying engineering. And that seemed to uh, appeal to me more, especially the ones that were taking petroleum engineering when I saw the geology classes that they were taking. Because I've always been a bit of a a rock nerd. And um, so I, I made the switch over and I think it probably took my mother a couple years to get over that and for the shock. But again, we all have those pivot points, you know, these decision points that take us on a complete pivot. And that was probably my first one in this 30 year career that I have in the oil and gas industry, and I've never looked back.
0: Yes, yes. So you obviously had an interest in science uh, and engineering when you were young. I mean, you obviously had that bent. I mean, there are some people who that's not their interest at all. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's uh, literature. I mean, they have different, uh, uh, but science is not something that everybody pursues. So did you recognize that in yourself when you were young, that science appealed to you? I mean, you obviously played with the color books. They, They were appealing to you, and then you actually did go into a medical track. I mean, there was something that you loved about something. Science.
1: There's a lot of elements around science that I loved, but really the driving factor was I wanted to have a career where I'd never be financially dependent on a man. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. And so that's when any of the STEM careers come about. absolutely. And that's actually something that I've instilled in my daughters and any other young woman in this world, too, is find something you love,
0: but... Make make sure there's a paycheck to go with that that that's fair that's fair and we live in a we live in a time when that's more and more an issue but um, hopefully uh... women have more choices and uh... in on all levels, in many arenas, that um, allows them to do what they love as well as to look for their future as well. So, exactly. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, um, so you graduated from
1: Alberta. I graduated from University of Alberta, and I graduated in. It was a five-year engineering program. It's what they call co-op, cooperative education. So within that five-year span, you graduated with 20 months of solid work experience. So there was five, four-month internships built in,
0: and... Did you get graded on your internships? Yes, you did. Oh, good. Okay, so you had that performance evaluation element of it. And I made sure that with uh, the the
1: selection of my internships, I did different companies. Uh, I did Mobile, uh, Amarata Hess, Chevron, uh, and a small Canadian company that existed at the time. um, Oh no, now I'm having a brain fart, but they don't exist anymore. (laughs) Um, And then also different elements, some of it was facilities, that was my, one of them was artificial lift, reservoir, so at least I came out of the gate having a good sense of where I wanted to be in this industry, uh, the type of company I wanted to work for. And uh, then also too, I had some of the work experience too. I was further up the learning curve than most other the graduates that did not do that co-op program.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's really uh, really prepared you to hit the ground running, if you will, after you graduated. So, what aspect of petroleum engineering really appealed to you the most, or do you love it all? I mean, I knew from those internships
1: that you needed to get out to the field and pay your dues as soon as you can, and I. I had s- several job offers when I graduated, and I chose the job off- offer with Chevron Canada because they had a very unique training program. It didn't matter if you were an electrical engineer, you were going to be a reservoir engineer. Everybody started out sitting in the rigs, and they had this huge checklist. You had to do so many whipstocks, well-deepening, so many fracturing jobs uh, to basically see it, touch it, do it. And then once you've done that checklist, and it usually took you about two or three years, uh, and then you finally got to see an office, but then that office would be in a remote location in Alberta somewhere, right? Yeah. To still kind of get that field cred. And that's one thing I've really talked to the younger generation, especially today, they just want to skip that piece. Oh. And having that experience and seeing things, like, for example, in the case of, my specialty that I'm in with artificial lift, within that training program, if you pulled it, you followed it to the shop for the dismantle, right? So you got to see every piece of it. So that's when I really started to become familiar with electric submersible pumps. Mm -hmm. Uh, Attended a lot of teardowns with that. Found that that was something I was interested in. But also, too, being out in the field and sitting in the rigs, you learn the special... Vernacular that's spoken in the field. Especially, too, that's where all of our data... That's the front line of our industry, right? Absolutely. And you have to be able to communicate and understand with that front line because that's where all our data is coming from. But in order to have that level of communication, they have to respect you. And if you're going to be this know-it-all engineer fresh out of school (laughs) that comes in... And that's actually that training program that Chevron... Some of it referred to, that that was the attitude adjustment training yeah. for the graduates that came out thinking, okay, I know it all. Yeah, yeah. And once you get to that field, those front lines, yeah. you know absolutely nothing.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I remember my first time on a rig, somebody said... Knowing I would hear, but not directly to me as, a, two things don't believe belong on the rig, that's women and engineers, you know, and here, you know, so that's definitely, I'm hoping that the um, attitudes aren't like that so much anymore um, in the field, but I completely understand what, what you're saying. So, so where did you go to work um, first First stop?
1: Um, uh, Chevron had an office in Edmonton, Alberta. That's right. I kind of started, but again, I told you I was out in the rig. So most of uh, Mm -hmm. the rig work was out in Fox Creek area, which is northeast of Edmonton. Oh, okay. Two hours. Okay. And then I actually ended up living up there for a period of time. And and trust me, the Fox Creek that people see today, it's like cosmopolitan now compared (laughs) to when I was there. Um, And. And then also, too, Chevron had a field that was just on the west side of Edmonton called Atchison as well. And you know what? Probably one of the most relevant learnings that I had through that period came from the field operators themselves. You know? Right. They... Those fields, the equipment, those wells were kind of like their own children. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? and, uh, And experience... Trump's a lot of books. That's exactly right. knowledge, right? Exactly right. And I kind of approached those gentlemen to, knowing I was the age of a lot of their daughters. Yeah, yeah. And so that was one way I was able to try and get their respect and start that that level of communication, was going in saying, look, you know way more. Um, I have so much to learn from you.
0: You know, take me under your wing and teach me, teach me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There is no substitute for that field experience because what what some people who never do that, who or aren't even oil and gas and they think they know all about drilling and tell us what to do and what not to do, um, that each reservoir has a personality. And different wells are kind of like the family <laughs> in the reservoir. And it, it's all a, a, a system. And, um, and, and that's what you have to be part of. And, that's, and, and it's an organic experience that stays with you forever. But until you are there, you, you don't really even have the um, vocabulary to understand what people are saying. When I say you know it's got a personality you know exactly what I mean but people outside the industry aren't going to really understand what does it mean personality like like what blue eyes blonde, blonde hair or you know and I said, no it has to do with pressure and temperature. <laughs> so okay so okay, okay this is great so um were you a part of SPE when you were uh, first working for Chevrolet or when did you approach SPE or how so did that come SPE
1: uh, first came to my university maybe when I was in my second to third year, and a student chapter was formed. And that was our first time really seeing what SP was about. And then towards my senior year, uh, my best friend and I were president and vice president of our student chapter. But even to the amount of SBE events that were still within that Edmonton area were s- very small. We didn't see much of the international piece because, again, too, this is still like kind of pre-internet days. Right, you know, that's having fair. access digitally to a lot of the materials. Right. Um, yeah. But even then, it helped expand our network outside of just our our company. It really didn't start um, resonating the power that an SVE membership can bring until I attended my uh, first big event, which was here in Houston in 1996. Actually, it was this particular event that we're at right now was my (sighs) first SVE conference. Well, then it was called a workshop. Right. And the following year I got asked to be on the committee and then it's just, you could see all the opportunities you could have in terms of development whether it's um, networking on the committees or the events, the best thing about being a young person on a lot of these committees is there's so many seasoned professionals that you may not necessarily interact with as much. So it was almost like being in training classes, just listening to these people, planning a
0: conference. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you were, say, in high school or whatever, were you part of student government then, joined clubs or anything like that? I mean, it's it's pretty daunting for some people to go from membership in anything to leadership of that membership, and so you, you must have had some interest in things along the way in terms of organizing large groups of people for a particular focus. I give my
1: hats off to the Girl Scouts, oh. or in Canada, or Girl Guides. Girl Guides, that's right. I knew that. I'm a Girl Scout. <laughs> yeah, and we only had two different flavors of cookies to sell, not like the U.S. <laughs> and oh my. at that young age this is where uh through the power of girl scouts or girl guides you experience things out of your comfort zone but you're in a safe space around people that are doing the same and yes. you're giving leadership opportunities at that young starting to build that confidence right, right. and this is why uh with my own daughters yeah. i was a uh, girl scout leader mm-hmm. here in the houston area for yeah. seven years me too in california <laughs> I and mean I, in virginia I, and I got to see with the young girls as they grew up the confidence and the leadership abilities i'm a huge proponent and i'm still very involved
0: uh... within the san Jacinto council here in houston excellent excellent yes and when we talk about leadership in the girl scout point of view or any young uh... uh person's experience, they're not in charge of everything. They're in charge of one little thing and called upon to do it very well. That, that's it. Mm-hmm. And once you do one thing and you get the coaching and you, and you finish it and then you teach somebody else, another girl, um, then you gather that. And, and that's why programs like that are really valuable for young people to be engaged, stay engaged, and get some confidence in a way that your parents can't give you. So that's that was really sad. So uh, my daughter was also um, a gold award winner. She did a uh, she did a career fair on. Um, she's an astronautics engineer, so she did a career fair on um, the various careers that you can do in space. Were your girls involved at the leadership level? Did they go through the whole program? They did not go through the whole program because I'm a mother of
1: competitive Irish dancers. Mm. And the amount of travel and oh, training
0: wow. and physio that was involved with yes. that, they... That's a huge commitment. They couldn't be involved with both. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a huge commitment. And, and again, the skills that they learned when they were younger came into play about being organized and the commitment and you know readiness, self-preparation for, for different competitions and events. Oh, how exciting. Oh, my gosh. And, you know,
1: at this event, you know, trying to bring something entertaining to my fellow SBE members, I may have at one point in the past dragged my daughters (laughs) into an SBE conference and said, daughters, dance. Good for
0: you. Good for you. Everybody loved it, I'm sure. And, you know, it's it's a memory for all of you. So, oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, okay. So, um, yeah, a very involved parent and um, very involved uh, professional. So, So, when did you leave Canada? Chevron transferred me down
1: to the U.S. in 97. It was supposed to be for a two-year assignment, and I've never left.
0: There you go. I know that story. <laughs> again, the, the the global
1: opportunities and and projects that are available in the Houston area um, were, were just so fascinating for me. And again, the longer I stayed in the U.S., the more doors of opportunity that would be open for me career-wise. So you know, we left and never looked back. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so when did you discover your the special place in your heart that you had for artificial lift? Well, that was the reason what actually brought me to the
1: U.S. So from my work with ESPs in Canada, and I was running some of the first ever systems in Canada, wow. uh, whether it was surface or downhole units, that Chevron brought me to their artificial lift group in Houston. I was to be the ESP expert, which is kind of... Funny in a way because I was only five years out of college. Oh wow! Right, and so now I'm a global expert for ESPs. Yeah. Uh, So drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. (laughs) And then within a year time, Chevron disbanded that artificial lift team because we had a gas lift expert, we had a progressing pump expert, reciprocating rod expert. The team disbanded. I was the only one left, so I had to pick up the knowledge of all the other artificial lift types. Oh, so. Now, okay, I was drinking from a fire hose before. Yeah. Now, here I'm trying to swallow an ocean.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but again, in th- Houston, <laughs> it, it's the power of just the same thing, too, with raising kids. You yes. don't know how much energy and what you're capable of until you're actually tested. Your feet
0: are to the fire, too, yes. you're tested. Yes. Excellent, excellent. So, um, and how long were you with Chevron? I was a chevron for about 12
1: years. And I should probably add too, okay, so with the artificial lift, there was another uh, reason why I chose or I kind of honed in on that to be what I wanted to specialize in. So um, a lot of people may not know, but about maybe between 80 and 90% of the wells worldwide are on some form, or going to be on some form of artificial lift. That's right. That's the life cycle right. of a reservoir. And it doesn't matter so. what the oil price is. Right. It, when the oil price is down, that's usually shutting drilling and completion units. Right. Uh, but we still have to maintain production to keep up with the world's energy demand, right? That's right. That's right. So I almost look to artificial lift as uh, job security. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Right. That's right. You got a it. well? It's flowing? Well, you want to keep it flowing, whatever it takes.
1: Exactly. And
0: there's different um, types of artificial lift, and you kind of go through all of them, I guess, depending on the, where you are in the life, life cycle of the, of the well and the, and the reservoirs. So. And at the time, too, when I first came to
1: Houston, and now I was starting to attend like the, the ESP workshops and gas lift workshops, and I was looking at the demographics, the age demographics in the room, yeah. and a lot of the subject matter experts were within a 10-year time of retirement. And here, I'm a newbie, an early career person. Right. So I thought if I could learn and mentor from as many of these people as possible, there wasn't many others around me my same age that were looking to specialize in artificial lift. So again, you know, I mentioned the job security. There would always be artificial lift. Right. Um, Right. But as far as now the demographics, I could be one of a, a small pool of people right uh, later in my career to be an artificial lift SME
0: yeah yeah so so it's interesting the way that you I want to say I want to use the word strategic um, but in the best possible way um, you know some people have a, a strategic vision to do something and they do whatever it takes to get there you know that kind of thing but that's not what I'm hearing from you I'm hearing from you is a very deep critical analysis. And then, based on what you're seeing, what you're learning, what you're understanding, putting the story together, then making the best choice available to you at the time, so that you can continue to move toward a certain direction—not with, uh, you know, the actual goal in mind—but being really, being really strategic about the decisions you made about where your next step would be, um, based on that critical analysis. And I think critical analysis is so important, and so many people aren't don't think about that they, it, things don't just happen they you know you got to make them happen I'm a firm
1: believer in not road mapping to the nth degree even just several years out as to where your endpoint uh, I'm more of create as many opportunities and open doors right. so when the time comes for you to make a decision you actually have a choice
0: right. Oh, that's great. That's great. So, okay. So, uh, I asked you after Chevron. After Chevron, where did you where did you go? So, I, I, now the pivot career point. Sure. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't
1: necessarily looking to leave Chevron, but at that time, um, because I was corporate engineering, doing artificial lift research, as well as being an SME for the global business unit. Oh, right. Um, Ch- Chevron management decided that there wasn't anything new uh, uh that could be created about artificial lift oh, okay. so they eliminated artificial lift out of the research portfolio okay. and was really pushing me to try and uh, do other functions right you can't pigeonhole your, yourself as artificial lift they now took away all my r&d dollars and again through my sve colleagues you know and i event you share, yeah. Uh, Phillips came knocking, yeah. and they said, we will allow you, if you come over, to continue your career in artificial lift. I had an amazing mentor, I actually all my mentors at Chevron had retired, so really, how am I going to get to that next level? Exactly, exactly. Um, and then they said, okay, give us a list of the research that you want to do, and I thought, oh, okay, so they'll pick maybe a few items off of this list. They said, nope, we'll fund it all.
0: Oh my gosh! Wonderful,
1: and so that was that was a no brainer. Yeah, and so yeah. it was one of those then where in in my heart I still had my passion for artificial lift. I wasn't going to have that track anymore at Chevron, but I was still loyal to the company. I didn't want to leave. Right. But again, through conversations with people, again creating those opportunities, an opportunity came, and that's right. when I moved over to ConocoPhillips.
0: Right. Right. So I want I want to pause on the um a research aspect, private sector funded research because, you know, as you know, I retired as the director of oil and gas upstream from the U.S. Department of Energy and invested tax dollars in research. But for oil and gas, it was early stage research, early TRL. So the question was getting through that valley of death to the next level, getting up to where you could demonstrate for purposes of commercialization and then, you know, having it qualified and, and the rest. So so DOE's investment was very early research, but um, yours was probably higher up, the TRL, or how, how would you characterize that in, in terms of distance from commercialization that you would use throughout the company?
1: For the most part, the research I dealt with was a prototype already existed. Okay, The product may, have, may not have been commercialized yet, but um, there are at least was some sort of widget yeah. that was built. And then working with the companies to make it uh, to well, it. ready, well, that's right. <laughs> you know, when, all all ready. Ready. when we have had some dismal failures where you think a prototype is well ready and then you hear that, um, oh, it wouldn't fit in the well, it was too big. Yeah. And I'm like, did yeah. nobody check on those dimensions, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and that's the part that um, it, it's safer to get funding internal for stuff when there's already that prototype. The early, early stuff, uh, we tend to see more of that in the, in the academic right. side. Right. And you know, we were funding that level of academic research because that's technology or processes that. Really, you're not going to see something come from it from like a 10 year time frame, right? Right, right. The work that I was doing was we were hoping to see some sort of result, whether it was positive or negative, right. you know, because you always learn in the failures. That's absolutely right. Within the budget cycle yeah, or yeah. A, a couple of budget cycles.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, m- me on the DOE side would invest uh, in early stage research in partnership with um, universities and with the private sector. And so this, uh, so everybody just put a little bit of money, if, if you will, just put a little bit into it, bringing it up to the various stages. And then at a certain time, uh, a certain point in the in the uh, TRL, DOE would let go and see if it would fly and, and like that. And some did, and then also some, Companies will partner with the national laboratories mm-hmm. uh, and pay for it privately and whatever, and use the you know very special skill set that national laboratories and technologies that they have available for uh, looking at questions. So, I just had to ask you that part about it. Well, and let me add when we're talking with some of the,
1: the laboratories and even some of the universities. Yeah. So artificial lift has been around for more than a hundred years, um, but no one. Well, many of the lift systems, no one truly understood the actual physics of them. Uh, Over time, there's been so many rules of thumb developed for operating, designing, and it was to a point where people forgot where those rules of thumb came from. Right. And then once the sensors and the instrumentation technology got to be a point where we could sensor up and measure these lift systems in operation, in flow loops, uh, so this is like some of the national la- laboratories in that, that we really got to actually understand the physics. And I think that was the enjoyment of my career because I got to be on the forefront yeah. of that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, on that vein, um, one of the most fun projects that I had when I was at the Department of Energy were the field laboratories. And so we would partner with national laboratories, several companies, it took a lot of money, government money as well, several universities, all doing, I want to say like their specialty, and we totally and completely instrumented the wells and the applications, and um, you know, drilled uh, strat wells, and I mean, just really science the hell out of, oh, I don't, ever talk like that. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> we used all of our scientific capabilities to measure every aspect that we were aware of that we could measure um, and, and documented it and, and published all of that. And we had uh, 17 field laboratories uh, and uh, at 19 sites. It was a really exciting time to be able to finally put some really good science to oil and gas. As you said, for so many years, we've always done it this way you know, I don't want to use this new technology, you know, all of those reasons or whatever. And here, all of the data that was there and available. And it was it was a very exciting um, time to do that. Well, great, great. But all that data also, too, helped a lot of the young masters and
1: PhD students. Oh, absolutely. Who, you know, and that's, this has always been a bone of contention for various folks as to why the oil and gas companies don't make their data public so right. the universities can study them, right? Right, right. So they had to turn to a lot of this data done in the national labs right. to be able to you know, study and have a thesis. I'm, I now know of a few oil and gas companies, Equinor, ConocoPhillips, they are starting to release data sets, maybe not necessarily publicly, but at least to a broader band of institutions and hopefully more will follow.
0: Right, right. So the notion of the data, the big data, the data analytics, moving to you know artificial intelligence, that whole arena with the, cap- the capabilities now that we have in that arena, make it possible for people to see things. But that's one of the things that um, happened with the tax dollars was that all of the information gathered on every project um, is is has a, a, there's a particular place where all of it is deposited and curated and available. Uh, two scientists, two people with, you know, serious purpose. It's not just open to the public because, you know, want to be careful. But um, having all of that available to advance the science of, um, of oil and gas, especially as, you know, we're saying moving into the um, artificial intelligence arena where it's really about safety and reliability that we would apply those kinds of um, learnings and things. So... Yeah. Oh, this is so much fun. I'm going to have to have you come back because we're almost at the end of our time. Um, are there any things that uh, el- any other things you would like to share with our listeners about oil and gas, about um, about the conference? You're going to be um, being the you're going to be the chair in the next one in two years in 2025, and and I'm sure you want to send out an invitation to everyone to to pay attention. We're going to go. I'm going to see you again at the SPE. Um, uh, annual technology conference and exhibition in San Antonio this year. So, so are there um, a few last words you would like to share with our listeners? Um, well,
1: I want to message the the importance and the value that SVE membership brings. Yes. But and it's interesting that um, when I was president, in my talks, I would mention that you know having an SPE membership is like having a gym membership. It, you're only that's you're right. only going to get benefit from it if you actually use it. Yeah, that's it. And right. it's nice now that incoming president Terry Pollitt he's yeah. now picked up and he's using that same analogy. Yeah. Uh, again, it's you know whether it's S P or just anything in the career, you can't just wait for things to come to you. You you have to make it happen. And you know here I am. I'm trying to raise two daughters. Right. Uh, I. Read many SPE papers while waiting, sitting through their dance classes, right. <laughs> or watching them gymnastics. Right. Um, you know, you end up having a double duty, you know, part. But I was also very specific with what I did with an SPE, making sure it would impact my career development. So I always That's stayed right. on the technical side. Right. Right. I. Even now while well, I enjoy playing in golf tournaments and stuff, but more of the social type aspects It was like, okay, that's not necessarily going to help me with my career uh, Also, too, being involved in standard committees Yes um, I Probably what I've learned in artificial systems, the bulk of it was sitting and working in those standards committees um, So you, you have to You have to get out there yeah, and. Um, yeah and then back to being a working mom, because yeah. sometimes, you know, these things aren't necessarily done during work hours, yeah. uh, but I was able to demonstrate to my management that, okay, this is a value, this is going to be bringing to the company. For example, if I'm sitting on a SBE conference and I'm seeing abstracts coming in and judging abstracts, I'm actually doing industry recon. Well, that's and right. I, <laughs> and I'm learning to see what our competitors are doing out right. there even before it gets published, or they may never get published so those abstracts don't get accepted, right? That's right. Um, but I learned earlier on, too, that the person who's the chair or yeah. the leader of the group, yeah. that's the schedule. Yes. And so I ran an ISO standards committee, an ESP one. Right. Okay. And those those poor gentlemen had no idea that I was scheduling all our ISO meetings around my Girl Scout troop meetings. <laughs> Good. They're like, why are, we, why are we meeting on a Sunday? And it's like, because yeah. I got to get my girls to camp on yeah. a Wednesday. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that
0: bit, you know. Uh, yeah. If, if you're in charge you can well that's right that's right and I I, I do want to take a moment do a really quick deep dive and come back up on sitting on standards you know committees just unpack that a little bit because I think that for new people young people or, or people who aren't really joiners that this is a really important function for subject matter experts just deep dive what exactly happens in such a meeting or a set of meetings or you know just at a high level but just give a peek behind the curtain for people who might wonder.
1: Okay, so I'll do an ESP example since we're at the ESP Symposium. There's never been a successful group to get all the manufacturers to agree how to test ESP motors or even uh, how to rate them for performance ratings. And it's in these meetings when you have all the various manufacturers around They're divulging exactly what they do, why they do it, and you start seeing the differences. And then you sit back and you listen to their subject matter experts, you know, get into the nuances and the nitty-gritty. And um, across all the different manufacturing components, you learn all these level of details or these nuances that you... You wouldn't learn otherwise. You wouldn't learn
0: in a conference because they don't want this information publicly available. Right, right. And it's still not publicly available when you do a standards meeting, but the people who are there doing the work have that insight or gain that exposure.
1: All what you see when reading a standard is this is the information that we agreed upon and agreed to make public. Right. You don't get all those other confidential discussions in behind.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, this has been... Delightful, Shauna. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I've had fun too. Oh <laughs> gosh, thank you. And well, like I said, we're gonna have to do this again. It's too much in common not to, including golf. So, Shauna Noonan, Oxy Fellow and Senior Director of Global Supply Chain Initiatives. Thank you so much for being with our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to the oil and gas industry.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.